Welcome to Hence the Future podcast. I'm Madam Cronin, and today I'd like to explore a thought experiment. What if civilization ended tomorrow? What if you woke up and all your devices stopped working, your water stopped running, and there was chaos breaking out in the streets? Do you have a plan already? Do you have the supplies you would need to survive? Do you have the skills in order to provide the basics, food, water, and shelter for yourself and for those you love? And let's say you are able to survive the apocalypse. How might we go about rebuilding civilization from scratch? Another way we could ask this question is, if civilization restarted today, how might it progress differently than it had throughout history? And even if civilization doesn't end anytime soon, what can we learn from this thought experiment about how we might want to go about colonizing Mars or improving life here on Earth? That's what I'd like to explore with you today. And the inspiration for this episode is a quote from Richard Feynman, where someone asked him, what sentence holds the most information in the fewest words? And he said, it is the atomic hypothesis that all things are made of atoms, little particles that move around in perpetual motion, attracting each other when they are a little distance apart, but repelling each other upon being squeezed close together. So in this episode, I'd like to use the spirit of Richard Feynman's quote and pack in as much useful survival information so that we could rebuild civilization from first principles if we needed to. Let's talk about a few ways that civilization might end. One would be a climate catastrophe. So an asteroid could hit Earth, similar to what happened with the dinosaurs. There could be a supervolcano that erupts that could create a sort of similar situation as a nuclear winter where there'd be crop failures and all of the smoke and dust would block sunlight, making it very difficult to survive. There could be massive hurricanes, there could be solar storms. So climate catastrophe is one bucket of possibilities. There's also the question of whether war could break out. You know, we already touched on nuclear war. There could also be a bioweapon. The worst situation of all would be some sort of runaway AI scenario like what Nick Bostrom talks about, where there are autonomous weapons that hunt down and eliminate all human beings. Because there are so many human beings on this planet that it'd be really hard to eliminate all of them, especially if it was some sort of natural disaster. We have human beings on the International Space Station. We have human beings in Antarctica, in bunkers. So to me, in order for us to actually face extinction, it would be necessary for there to be some intelligent being, whether it's an AI or a malevolent government or an alien species that specifically is trying to eliminate all of us. Either that or the entire Earth gets destroyed by being pulled into a black hole or something like that. So those are some pretty wild scenarios, but it's worth noting that even in a very normal scenario, like let's say Hurricane Katrina as one example, it took five days for emergency responders to go in and rescue people during Hurricane Katrina on average. That is longer than you would be able to go without water. There's this really useful rule of threes, which is that you can go three minutes without air, three days without water, and three weeks without food before you would die. 
So three days without water is a really important thing that you need to take care of right away if there's a disaster. And even if there's a hurricane and the government is fine and civilization is still running, even in that situation, you would have to figure out how to survive, get enough water, shelter, tr maybe treat your, you know, some injured people with medical supplies. You'd have to figure that out all on your own before help arrives. And typically it takes three to 14 days for emergency responders to come. So it's important to be prepared, even if there isn't some cataclysmic event that destroys civilization. So let's say something major happens. There's a hurricane, there's an earthquake, an asteroid hits, there's an attack, whatever the situation may be, you wake up one day and your phone's not working, the water's not running. What do you do? What should your immediate first reaction be? The first thing you should really focus on is getting water. Get as much water as you can because this is going to be really hard to come by, especially if you don't live near a natural water source like a well or a freshwater river or something like that. So you're going to want to get as much water as you possibly can. There may be water near your radiator. There may be water near your sewage system. There hopefully will be some water left in your sink, in your faucet. So as soon as something happens, you should be storing water in every bucket or container you have and put it somewhere where it's not going to be exposed to sunlight. Not being exposed to sunlight is really important because otherwise algae will grow in the water and it'll be rendered useless and undrinkable. In order to purify water, you're going to need to boil it for a little bit. That'll get rid of any sort of bacteria. Now, if you don't have any sort of fire, you could use glasses with the sun. That's a great way to start a fire. You could also just find a soda bottle that by using it in the same way as you would a magnifying glass or glasses, you can also create a fire. And if you smear a little bit of chocolate or toothpaste on the bottom, it'll increase the reflectiveness of it to improve your ability to start a fire with it. And if you're scrounging around, you know how water bottles have the little recycling sign and then a number? Find a, a soda bottle that has the number one next to the recycling sign because that's the perfect sort of soda bottle to use for starting a fire. So let's say you've now boiled the water so you're able to get rid of any sort of bacteria that's in the water. You could simply buy it, boil it and then drink it after that. But if you wanted to really have a better process, you could basically boil it and then have the condensation of all the steam be gathered in a different receptacle. So if you think about like the simplest possible way you could do this, imagine you have two metal buckets and then you have a hose going from one bucket to the other. You heat up one bucket of water, the other bucket's empty, and as all of the little droplets go through the hose, you now have purified water on the other end. You can do this in lots of different ways, but the basic principle is if you allow the water to evaporate into little droplets and then have those droplets gather in a separate receptacle, that's a great way to purify water. Another important way for purifying water is to use a little bit of household bleach to get rid of any sort of uh, pollutants that might be in the water. So 
Typically eight drops of bleach per gallon of water is what's recommended if the bleach is 6% sodium hypochlorite. So if it's a higher concentration of sodium hypochlorite, you'll want to put slightly fewer drops. Another really useful tip is making tea. So you already are going to have to boil your water. So why not, once you already have this hot purified water, put a little bit of ground plants in the water so that you get the additional nutrients from that. So you can put a little bit of sage or peppermint or, or whatever sorts of plants you may have nearby, as long as they're edible plants. That's obviously important. The next most important task at hand will be food making sure you have enough food for yourself and for the people who you are surviving with. Anything perishable should be eaten right away. So if you have stuff in the fridge, like yogurt or something that's going to go bad really quickly, you should eat that right away because it's not going to stay for long anyways. You might as well get that, those fresh nutrients right away. After that, any sort of grains you have, like oatmeal and rice and pasta, that sort of stuff should be consumed next after the perishables. And then finally, canned foods will last the longest. So canned foods can last over a decade, depending on the canning process and the type of food that's in it. So scavenging for canned food is going to be really important, especially early on before it's been ransacked by everyone else. And to put this in perspective of how important this can be, one supermarket if you had the entire supermarket to yourself, would last one person 55 years in terms of the amount of food they could depend on. So somewhere near the beginning of the cataclysmic event, if you don't already have canned food stockpiled, you should probably go out and scavenge and get some canned food so that you at least will know that you have some sort of food you can depend on for a long time if you're not able to have success with farming or hunting right away. Another really important resource you'll need as it relates to food is seeds. So if and when you do start farming, and you're probably going to need to eventually start farming, you will need some seeds that you can plant. Now you can find seeds in grocery stores, you can find them at garden shops, there are also seed stores and there are specific places where the U.S. government and other governments all around the world have stored seeds just in case something like this massive happens. There's even one seed store that's near the Arctic Circle that's in a steel vault way beneath the ground in a really cool environment. And because of that, even if this steel vault was left completely untouched, it would last a thousand years. So we're not going to run out of seeds. It might be hard to find them initially, but I would say once you have your canned foods and your water purification system set up, you should probably try to find some seeds or at least have it on your mind where if you come across any, like while you're scavenging for canned foods, you should definitely take the seeds that you find. If you do decide to start farming, which is definitely a good idea, especially if you go into a more rural area where it's not as easy to scavenge for canned foods, then there are a few basic things you should know. One is that you're going to need to till the soil first. So wherever you plan to farm, you're going to need a hoe, a rake, or some sort of tool and churn up all that soil so that you're mixing the nutrients of the soil together 
and also so that you're killing any of the weeds you're cutting out the roots of the weeds before you plant something fresh so you're not competing against those weeds it's useful to know that the ideal type of soil is about 60 percent sand 10 percent clay and 30 percent silt so you want to have soil that is somewhere in that range not too sandy not too clay you know somewhere in between and it's also important to know that some crops add nitrogen to the soil whereas others remove nitrogen from the soil so you don't want to just have one crop like grain where you're only planting this one crop and you've basically put all your eggs in that one basket because the soil is going to get depleted over time and you're not going to have a good crop yield in the second or third time that you harvest. A really useful rule of thumb is four crop rotation. So rather than just having the same crop all year round, rotate four different crops throughout the year so that you'll have the proper nutrients to sustain your farm harvest after harvest. And when you think about what farming really is, it's about creating a little microcosm of planet Earth that all interacts with one another. So another really useful tip is if you can find some farm animals, some chickens, some cows, some goats, whatever it may be, that will help your farm because the hooves of the animals will help to churn the soil for you. They'll graze on some of the weeds. Their dung will serve as fertilizer and manure. And so you create this little ecosystem that will allow your farm to thrive. And in the same way, you don't wanna just plant your crops, you also wanna plant some flowers so then the pollinators like the bees and the hummingbirds will come. And that's what you're really doing. You're creating this little mini planet Earth ecosystem. And I would say that it's impossible for me to impart all of the little tips you would need to know about farming but if you use the scientific method and you use trial and error and you plant, you know, maybe you plant some plants over here with a certain type of soil and other plants over there with a different type of soil, you can see which type is most effective. And then the next harvest, you can only use the most effective type. In the same way, you could try alternating different types of crops and seeing which combination is the most effective. So these are all really useful tips for you to know just at a high level as it relates to farming. And once you do have some food, how are you gonna preserve it? That's another really crucial question you're gonna to need to ask. So using salt is one way of preserving food, especially meat, that's a great way to preserve your food. You can also dry your meat. This is one of the best ways to store meat long-term, especially if you don't have access to ice or refrigerator. So. It's actually really simple to make beef jerky or chicken jerky or dried fruits or dried tomatoes or whatever it may be. Basically, all you need to do is put it out in the sun and have some sort of netting around it so that the bugs can't get to it. So if you imagine, you can just take some, some netting like a mosquito net or maybe even the if you have those really uncomfortable swimming suits that have the netting in there, whatever netting you might be able to find, you basically just want to have like shelves of layers that you can put the meat on. You have the nets protecting it and then the sun shining through so that you're drying your food. And then it can last for a pretty long time because without any water content in your food, it's hard for your food to spoil and go bad. 
So if you take out all of the water content, you'll be able to rely on that food source for far longer. And of course, if you are in a cold climate, storing things in the ice and the snow is another really good method for preserving food over time. Let's talk about shelter. That's going to be another important element for your survival. In any cataclysm, there's not going to be a shortage of shelter because there are so many buildings that human beings have built. So the question becomes, what is the type of shelter that you should go for? According to Louis Dartnell, who wrote the book, The Knowledge, which is about a lot of the topics we discussed today, you should leave the city immediately if there are many rotting corpses around. So if there was some nuclear war or what, anything that would leave a lot of people dead, especially something like a pandemic or a bioweapon, you should leave the big city. And the reason is that all of those dead and decaying bodies are going to provide a real risk of disease. And it could seep into the water supply. It could seep into the crops or the soil. So if there is some situation where there's a lot of dead people around in an urban area, you should get as far away from there as you can. And the best places to go are by the coast or in the countryside. And as far as how to get away, a motorcycle is going to be way more effective than a car because you can actually navigate through traffic. I mean, I live in L.A., and if something broke out in L.A., it would be really difficult to get out of the city. I just can already see the major traffic jam. So good luck going in a car. But if you have a motorcycle, you have a better chance. Obviously, a helicopter would be even better. And in the worst case scenario, I guess you could go on foot. A boat is another great option other than pirates which would be a risk you at least aren't going to run into traffic jams and you can pretty much just freely navigate to wherever you need to go so let's say you're outside of the city and you found a good place to hunker down it's important to have a hearth in the middle of the home so that you can actually keep yourself warm especially if you're in a colder place so you might just tear off some of the carpeting so that you have the exposed concrete or stone and you could just build a fire right there as long as you have a window open or somewhere so it doesn't get too smoky. And depending on what sort of ecosystem you're in is going to depend on what your greatest needs are. So for instance, LA is a natural desert. So if all of a sudden there was a cataclysm and the system stopped working, the biggest risk would be the dryness and the inability to get fresh water because all of the water in LA is pretty much brought down from Northern California and from the Colorado River. So very quickly you would realize, oh, we actually live in a desert. Getting water is gonna be our number one priority. Whereas if you live in Washington, like Washington DC, that's a natural swamp. So getting water isn't gonna be as big of a deal but staying dry with all of the disease that goes along with the swampiness and everything being damp and your food rotting more quickly, that's going to be a bigger concern for you than the water. And of course, if you're somewhere that's cold, then staying warm and getting fire and having warm shelter and insulation and good clothing is also going to be probably more important than it would be in someplace like L.A. And that's another reason why it's nice to have farm animals on your little farm, 
because whenever they do die or it comes, you know, the day comes where you need to kill the animal to eat it, you can actually make your own clothes out of the hide or the fur, which might be life-saving in certain circumstances. And according to Louis Darnell, the most effective civilizations will be outside of major cities, but close enough so that you can go and scavenge them when you need to. So you don't have the dangers of being in the actual city with the decay and maybe these bands of violent citizens who are trying to steal stuff from you. You're outside of the city, but you're close enough that you could go and scavenge if you need to. There's one useful hack that I think you should know about as it relates to shelter and staying warm, and that is charcoal. So if you've ever made a fire and at the end you notice there's charcoal at the bottom, then you know how easy it is to create this stuff. And the benefit of charcoal is that it burns at 2x the amount of heat for the same amount of charcoal as wood would burn. So to create charcoal, it's fairly easy. You basically just need to create a wood fire and eliminate the amount of oxygen. So all you would need to do is basically dig a hole, you know, light some wood in the hole. Maybe you cover the hole with a layer of some sort of, you know, sheet of metal and maybe some soil on top. And then you allow all that smokiness of the fire without oxygen to create charcoal for you. And if you have charcoal, then you can use it to burn, to keep yourself warm. You can use it for cooking. You can also use charcoal to purify water. So if you have a Brita filter at your home, you'll notice that the stuff on top, the black stuff is charcoal. And you could create your own filter just by basically having, like let's say you have like, take out a plastic trash can, you poke some holes in it, maybe you put like a t-shirt over it, and then you sprinkle some charcoal and some sand and alternating layers, and then you pour the dirty water on the top, and then it basically filters out, and you have clean water dripping to the bottom. You can also create a very simple power generator using charcoal. And in World War II, a lot of wood burning and charcoal burning cars were actually used because there was a limitation of the availability of fossil fuels and other types of fuels. So if you can figure out charcoal and use charcoal for various purposes, it is a really useful material uh, for a number of reasons. Now that we've covered some of the most important survival tips, let's talk more broadly about how civilization would progress differently if it was started today. So you've already got the basics covered, you've got enough food, and you're ready to reboot civilization. How would it progress differently? We would start in the same place. So we would start with sticks and stones, hunting and gathering, simple living. Then we would move to a phase of the agricultural revolution where you realize it's, it's better living for me to have a nice, well-defended enclave and to grow my own food and raise my own animals so I can depend on it year after year, and I don't have to constantly move from point A to point B to point C as a nomad scavenging around. I can actually create my own little community that I can depend on and that I can feed the people who are in that community. But we would likely not go to the Industrial Revolution. So the Industrial Revolution was fueled by fossil fuels. 
by oil and gas. And we've already depleted most of the readily available sources. So if there was some new civilization, it would be really hard for them to easily access even things like coal, right? I mean, they would have to dig deep down into the earth because most of the easily accessible deposits have already been exploited. So it's likely that we would basically start with hunter-gatherer, then agricultural, then we would leapfrog to the renewable energy phase. And maybe we would have some simple power generators like the charcoal generator we discussed earlier. But we would likely then move to something where we leverage wind energy and water energy and solar energy. And that would allow us to really evolve our civilization in a much more sustainable way. And we can really learn from that when we think about how we would go about colonizing Mars or how we should maybe improve the civilization we already have. The other question is, how do you go about governing your little community? And I very much believe that democracy is the best, worst kind of government, as the famous quote goes. So if you're in a small community, let's say it's just you, your, you know, your family, a couple friends or neighbors, you would likely have a direct democracy where everyone votes on any major event. If you had a larger group, like let's say your whole neighborhood is all one community, it's more likely that you would have an indirect democracy where maybe one representative of each street in your neighborhood is sort of the mini leader representative of that street. And then those representatives all vote together on some major question of, you know, if someone was on trial for murder, what should happen to that person? Or should we leave our community and go elsewhere? Should we go scavenge? Whatever major decisions the community may have to make. And as this relates to the future of colonizing Mars and uh, establishing other forms of government, I thought Elon Musk had a really good quote where he talked about that, you know, what, when someone asked him, what would you do differently on Mars as far as setting up a government? He said he would make the laws much simpler. So they're as short as possible. They're not written at length like a lot of our laws are today so that there's a minimal possibility for loopholes and for people to exploit them. And he would make it far easier to remove a law than to add a new one. So he said that we should require two-thirds majority to add a new law, but just a simple majority to remove a law. So that way we don't get this bureaucratic bloat that we have in our current system and all of these loopholes. You instead have something that looks closer to the Ten Commandments, which is much more stable, easy to remember. Everyone can agree upon it. And that would be a better system than the system we have today. The last thing I'll say before we get into our future scenarios is that rebuilding society is all about starting at first principles. So the scientific method is the most important first principle of all, which is that in order to find out anything about reality, we need to create an experiment where we have a hypothesis we want to test and all other variable variables remain exactly the same while we test the one variable that we care about. And if we can remember this process and use it time and time again, we will be able to rebuild society 
and reboot civilization. Let's talk about the worst case scenario. Worst case scenario. In my mind, the worst case scenario is humanity is completely extinguished. And like we said earlier, I think the only way that could happen is if you had some sort of conscious actor specifically trying to eliminate all humans. The next worst scenario would be a nuclear situation, nuclear war or a major nuclear accident or a misunderstanding, whatever it may be, because that adds a whole additional layer of concern, which is radiation. And it might not even be safe to go out above ground and scavenge and the water might be polluted, and the air might be toxic. So that would be a much more difficult situation because getting the basics would become way harder. The next worst scenario would be a pandemic because this would sow mistrust among people. We're already seeing this with the coronavirus pandemic, even though it's nowhere near as bad as a pandemic could possibly be. And that makes it hard to collaborate because if you're always concerned oh, this new stranger might have the disease, it sows mistrust and it's hard for people to collaborate and cooperate. The next worst case scenario would just be you don't have the supplies, you don't have the knowledge, you haven't thought things through. And just the act of thinking to yourself, what would I do in this situation? Where would I go? How would I get to my loved ones if our phones didn't work? Just thinking through those questions and maybe talking about it with your family and your loved ones will make you not only more prepared, but also have more peace of mind. And you're not going to be totally at a loss for what to do if this situation does arise. Let's talk about the best case scenario. Best case scenario. The best case scenario in my mind is a natural disaster. Because in that case, no one is at fault, right? If there's some major solar flare or asteroid or hurricane or earthquake, we're not going to blame any one person. We might do it anyways because it's human nature, but it would be much easier to collaborate in that situation than if there was an actual malevolent state actor or pandemic or bioweapon or something like that. So I think in that scenario, we would be able to reboot civilization and make it even better than it was before. I think colonizing Mars is a major opportunity to do so where we can take all the learnings from how civilization progressed on Earth and create a better system for the next planet that we colonize. We can also improve life here on Earth and think about how do we add more anti-fragility to the system where it's not just about last second production where everything gets there just in time and there's no waste and every seat on an airplane is filled for maximum profits. Maybe instead of that, we move to a system of redundancy where we have multiple sources for food and travel and water and shelter so that if any one of them goes down, we're not at a loss for what to do. We have backups in place. And I think that's part of the silver lining of the coronavirus is we realized how fragile our economy and our system is. So now we can actually make moves and take steps to improve the system and make it more resilient. Let's talk about the most likely scenario. Most likely scenario. The 
The most likely scenario is that we have not experienced the last cataclysm. Throughout history, there have been many instances where civilization has risen and fallen and then risen again. It's really only in recent modern history where we have this notion of progress, where things always get better year after year, and we never move backwards, we only move forwards. It's unlikely that that is going to go on forever, but hopefully we will be able to reboot civilization if we do take some steps backwards. And the biggest way we can do that is by preserving the knowledge and the learnings we have so that it's not lost for history. You know, I study a lot of ancient Greek and Roman history, and during Greek and Roman times, they would look back to the heroic age of that Homer talks about as being sort of the pinnacle of their society. And they wanted to get back to the good old days. And then after the Roman Empire fell, we went into the Dark Ages and people forgot a lot of what they had learned in the previous era. And really the Renaissance was really a rediscovering of all the knowledge we had during Greek and Roman times. So my hope is that even if civilization ends or it has some major hit to it, we will be able to reboot civilization by preserving the knowledge that we have gained. I think we have a lot of major challenges ahead. Climate change is a big challenge. We are going to have a lot of climate refugees and have to figure out what to do with them. Government incompetence is a big issue. We recently had the explosion in Beirut, which seems like it was the result of government incompetence of not properly storing these dangerous chemicals and materials. And there are a lot of dangerous nuclear materials and chemical materials all around the world. And governments aren't always competently dealing with this. So it's quite likely that there will be other explosions like what happened in Beirut. And how we respond to it is going to determine which direction civilization goes. There's also technological progress is a major area we're going to need to watch. So autonomous weapons, artificial intelligence, the inequalities that that creates in society, and also the decoupling between the U.S. and China. This is a major schism in the global economy and the global system that we're going to have to deal with. And lastly, there are many things beyond our control, things that happen in space, like solar flares and black holes, and we're going to need to keep an eye on that as well. So to bring this to some sort of useful conclusion, life is about more than just surviving. So it's not all about running away, hiding, and it should be about helping others as well. So if you are able to find a good way for purifying water, or creating energy, or you have good shelter, share that with others. Try to help and rescue other people. And that will, in the end, create a stronger society for us all to live in, so we can create an even better world. Thank you all so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. The past, the present, and the future. Red
If you enjoy thinking about the future as much as we do, we invite you to join the HTF community. Simply go to hencethefuture.com, scroll to the bottom of the homepage, and add your email address next to the button that says, Enter the Void. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter, at Hence the Future. And, most importantly, we encourage you to please rate and review the show in Apple Podcasts if you haven't done so already. Our team reads and appreciates every single review. Thank you again for listening to today's episode and for staying curious, and we'll see you next week.